Hello and welcome to another edition of RazorWire. Today we're going to be navigating the courses of cybersecurity legislation from government institutions and other institutions related to those types of organizations. Um, and in order to do that, I thought, who can I get who really knows this environment and has a number of customers under very strict legislation from government on the services that they provide. And I thought of Dragos. So we have the wonderful Steve and Phil, who can tell us a little bit more about what he's seeing from kind of like their customer side and some of the conflicts and issues and difficulties that they actually have themselves. So let's hop down this bunny trail and see what we can get. So let's do the introductions. Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. So, here today to talk about legislation and navigating this wonderful world of cybersecurity in an ever changing world, I have two special guests. I have Steve and Phil, both from Dragos. So, Steve, shall we start with yourself? Yes. Uh, thank you for this opportunity, Jim. I am the CISO of Dragos. I've been doing cybersecurity since the late 1980s. It wasn't necessarily called cybersecurity back then, but I, I've focused a lot of my career on, on OT, ICS, which is heavily regulated, as you know. So I've got kind of a, a warm spot in my heart for how to deal with legislation and how to, you know, where it's uh, the ins the and outs are of, of Governance in, in general. Fantastic. And Phil. I am Phil Duncan. I'm Chief of Staff at Dragos. I'm Chief, Chief of Staff to the CEO. My role you know, on a day by day basis often involves me engaging with, with customers and um, listening to, to the, the needs that they have, in particular in resolving the issues that many critical infrastructure companies have around the globe. I joined the cybersecurity industry only a few years ago, but I focused on cybersecurity you know, with my previous employer for the five or six years before that. But my, my career has really spanned you know, many different engineering functions and uh, understanding how to manage assets and how to manage risks within those spaces. So I'm one of those people who transition from looking after the systems that we're now trying to protect and, and you know, by getting an understanding of how those systems work you know, and, and you know, what risks they face, you can understand the challenges that the, you know, the additional threat vector of cybersecurity offers. Fantastic. I've been looking forward to, to speaking with you guys on a number of different subject matters for a little while. I think you guys have a, quite a unique kind of offering where you do get involved in a lot of organizations who are subject to the kind of legislation that the most other organizations don't tend to come across. I mean, there's plenty of people out there that are used to kind of like financial regulation, that kind of thing. But when it comes to like government, especially OT, it's quite extensive. And I know that from cybersecurity perspective, like legislation in this space is relatively new in the grand scheme of things. You go back 10 years and the legislation was very, very loose because I, th I think a lot of people looked at InfoSec as not really a thing that you needed to worry about and how how that has changed in recent times. I mean, <laughs> you know, I turned on the news this morning and it, uh, 
do it every morning. It's like, who's been compromised today? Who's gotten themselves in trouble? What water company has been done by a particular group out in certain parts of the world who may or not, may not be annoyed at another certain part of the world? You know, what nuclear facility has been done? I think in the, in the UK, Sellafield has just been reported to have been compromised. And I think what we're seeing in recent times is quite a big uptick in both commercial compliance requirements, such as PCI DSS, you know, the need for ISO 27001. But we're also starting to see a lot of governments start to really catch up as well and take take the kind of cybersecurity piece really seriously. I mean, Steve, you're, you're from over the pond in the States. You've recently had uh, your president, Mr. Biden, legislate against kind of like the AI side of things, which has, I know, been quite a big piece for Silicon Valley. But you guys are starting to see quite a significant change in the way of things working over there because of that colonial pipeline issue that occurred a few years ago. Do you just want to give us a, a bit of a view of what your thoughts and what you're seeing over there in the States? Because uh, no doubt we're going to be seeing either something similar over here or we're going to be seeing it relatively soon. Yeah, I think, you know, that first and foremost, I think that there's some, uh, there's a lot of uh, confusion in the CISO community and the practitioner community, the asset owners. You know, if you ask, uh, and again, Phil might be able to elaborate on this. Uh, he, he spends a lot more time with customers. But if you ask uh, a person that owns an, a cybersecurity, you know, a program at a company and say, what do you need from the government? They're likely going to say, I don't want the government involved at all. Because now if the government's involved now, I've got to set up a whole new compliance wing. I've got to take dollars from my my actual tangible security budget and put it into trying to protect this new, you know, a risk of, of non-compliance or whatever, especially when it has teeth, you know, when there's uh, millions of dollars or, or whatever of levy or, or fines, if you are found non-compliant, whenever the people are looking for guidance, but when they look at the, the guidance that's available today, most companies, it seems like now are starting to have to deal with international regulations. So they've got, like you're talking about, there's uh, executive orders and there's some, some things that apply to everyone across the board in the U.S. And then there's state specific legislation and then there's now anything we have to deal with with countries where we do business uh, it just gets really complicated there's no kind of rosetta stone or something to say okay here's what i have to do for take your pick you know for password uh, complexity and length or for you know uh, encryption there's no just one size fits all if i do this and meet this need this will take care of all compliances so you instead have to protect to certain compliances and map all these controls and it just gets unwieldy and it changes. You know, it's such a moving target. If you think you're doing okay today, you, you know, and you haven't looked for a couple of weeks, there might be some new legislation or change that you have to meet. It just makes a new, another risk that's difficult and could possibly take scarce resources away from an area where we're sometimes starting to make some traction and, and, and get ahead of the thing. It must be crazy for you guys, actually, because I mean, over here in the UK, and we'll kind of move over to Phil, you know, shortly, we don't have quite as much difficult legislation to navigate because, as you quite rightly pointed out, Steve, you've got you've got the local state, you've got the federal requirements, then you've got any kind of like additional government requirements via industry, industry standards. You've got things like HIPAA as well. So, if you're the CISO of an American organization or an organization that's multinational and has locations in the states, as well as say in Europe or whatever. You've got GDPR over here to worry about. You've legislation over there. You've got – how do you kind of track all of this? I mean, is this something that you've, you've literally got to the point where 
we really need to have some kind of GRC tool to figure out what's going on across the board. Because you could comply with one legislation, I'm guessing, but it might not quite comply with another legislation that, that requires, say, a stronger password or multi-factor authentication. Or Do you have somebody you actually employ to do this? Or, or is this looking yeah. increasingly like something that you might end up having to do? Absolutely. I think both things that you said, you know, you have to have a tool of some sort. The days of trying to manage this with a spreadsheet, even if you had an army of people, that's going to be impossible. Uh, and, and not just a tool that, you know, does mapping and crosswalks across um, controls and things, but you have to have some way to be looking out there and seeing what's what's coming new, you know, like uh, crawlers or or some kind of feeds to keep the tools updated. Um, and then, like you say, a dedicated team. The hard part, it should be, the hard part of security should be the security part, the trying <laughs> to figure out what, what controls are effective, have a threat intelligence that feeds and, and, and builds your, you know, uh, uh, efficacy of your tool base and things like that. But it seems like now that that's almost more tangible and more defined in a way than than the compliance framework. So you end up having to have almost two sets of teams. It's a kind of different skill set too. I've learned this even recently, you know, back, I don't know what, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, it seemed like security people just to ha- had to have a, a GRC acumen bolted onto their career that had to be like a crossover where they did it all. But it just seems like now they're starting to specialize. And some of the people that you'll hire that are have hard technical skills, fantastic penetration testers or whatever code level, you know, uh, AppSec uh, uh, assessors and things that doesn't necessarily translate over to writing standards and policies that meet the needs of all the compliance to assessing to determine if, if they meet the minimum requirements or not and stuff like that. At one time, IT and security was even one thing. And then over, like yeah. I mentioned, I did, I did security and, and, uh, I guess as early as uh, 1989 and the security back then was mainly just access controls, physical security uh, in the military. It was things like ensuring that people can't snoop on the wire, like converting to fiber when you went outside or whatever, things like that. But then over time that became its own specialty and they separated. Now, same kind of thing. A security person is going to separate from, it seems like from GRC and it's going to have more of a legal acumen understanding all the, the ins and outs of every word and what that, what the ramifications are. And it's funny you should say that. Weirdly enough, I was talking with a, another colleague, a, fr- a friend of mine, and uh, the other day, and, and there seems to be this new breed of infosec person springing up from the legal sector of all things, which I never thought I would see. But you know, you've got cybersecurity specialists in the legal sector now, and it's it's like, wow, okay, this this is very different from the twenty five years ago when it was all sticky tape and and chewing gum and everything was kind of put together. Now we have entire legal representatives who whose sole job is to understand legislation, whether you're in, whether you're out of it, and how to argue, you know, in the event that there is an issue or whatever. But let's move over to Phil. Phil, I mean, what are we seeing in kind of the more European side of things when it comes to legislation? I mean, we've got DORA incoming soon. Uh, well, it's technically already in. It's just not kicked off just yet, which is going to be a real big game changer in Europe. But... What are your thoughts on the, the the subject matter of legislation? Yeah, it's a, it's been a really sort of interesting journey over the last few years in you know, in in Europe and the UK. Uh, we a lot of the legislation, in particular that that affects critical infrastructure companies, has come a lot later in the journey. When you look at the history in the US with things like NERC-SIP regulations that apply to the electricity industry, it's you know it's been there for a long time and and it's it's had time time to develop and it it had a purpose. You know it. it 
it occurred to set up that kind of legislation to manage a risk that companies didn't necessarily believe in at the time mm. it was brought in. And I think that's when that's when regulation and compliance can really work. When there's no, not necessarily any motivation to do the right thing, you've got to come in with specific controls that are very measurable. And it drives people to do something. And without a doubt, that moves the risk needle somewhat. Uh, but the, uh, one of the big challenges the, the big with challenge. uh, with a lot of compliance frameworks is that being compliant doesn't necessarily mean you're managing the risks. It doesn't mean you're necessarily managing the specific threats that are out there. And so legislation that's come later, you know, from, from you know, and we've seen that with the European Union and the NIS directive and you know, the NIS 2 coming, coming into enforcement you know, next year across the member states of the EU, is there's been a maturing of the types of control framework that are put on to you know, the organizations that uh, are being measured against it. And in many cases, they are risk-based controls now. You know, they allow organizations to identify the right kind kind of um, compliance metrics that they, that will help them to demonstrate that they are mitigating certain types of risks rather than having to implement certain controls. So the in the UK, the NIS directive, you know, it does have indicators of good practice, which helps you understand what sort of things you might put in, but it doesn't mandate that you must have those specific controls in place. You can have all the mitigating controls against a particular type of threat. And I think that just just goes to show the journey that organizations are on. Uh, the European Union moving to NIS 2 is all about addressing some of the gaps that were there in NIS 1 from 2018. And uh, you know, and we're seeing like you know, a constant maturing, but it, it is a it is a very fast moving legislative environment. You got you know everything from DORA, the Cyber Resilience Act, the yeah, network code on cybersecurity, and NIS 2 coming into force all next year. It's you know, there's a huge amount of movement in in Europe right now and as a lot of complexity, and there is a there is a risk that organisations have a lower tolerance to compliance risk than the, the from, than the risks that they have from from the outside world. So they will put a lot of effort into demonstrating compliance. That is a transfer of effort and and resources and, and funds uh, to you know towards demonstrating compliance over managing and mitigating those specific risks. Like you know, like as Steve was saying, it's you really do need to have a proper threat-led approach to understanding the risks that you face as an organization. You know, who's targeting not just me, but the type of industry that I'm in? What are the you know, what are the tactics that they're actually using? That helps you to understand you know, what should I really try and address. But if you've got a compliance framework that says everything should be patched within a certain period of time, you can run around patching things that are just totally unnecessary. But that's the sort of thing that people will do because it's the only thing that's really measurable to them because they haven't invested in that that you know, risk based process. So yeah, it's a big. It's a, there's a lot going on. It's uh, you know it, there's a lot for people to keep on top of. Uh, I think we're fortunate that it's newer legislation that's built on on you know, on some sort of foresight of uh, of what's happened in the past in other countries, but it's still got a you know there's a there's a a big uplift for many organisations who are just starting to fall into that compliance space. You know, NIS two brings a lot of a lot of operators of infrastructure in that weren't in the original uh, legislation. When you look across many of the European countries, and uh, we're seeing sort of a, a tightening of capabilities as as the UK government start to think about what to do with its NIS regulations as well. So it's a yeah challenging time. I've always had a bit of a love-hate relationship with legislation and, and in many respects, compliance as well. I mean, commercial compliance, I think, is a very different animal for, to, to legislation. You know, 
I find a lot of legislation is massively knee-jerk. It's like something happens, something bad happens, the government kind of goes, oh, we've got to get involved because we can't have this kind of happen again. And then, you know, five minutes later, you've got a set of directives and you're like, was, did they consult an infosec person when they wrote these? Because some of these are going to be very difficult to implement. And it's like, well, if this is now legisl- you know, legislation, if this is coming in in the next sort of six months or so, some of the changes that, that, that you suddenly see, you're like, I can't do this in six months. I've got a massive environment. I've got, in many respects, especially in the OT industry, and the same with the manufacturing industry, a lot of old technology, you know, old systems that are running these lines that haven't necessarily had many updates in years and years and years, and you can't necessarily impose the security constraints on that kind of environment. Are you seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of problems with that kind of thing with some of the OT environments that you guys handle on the customer side of it? Obviously, I'm not saying that your customers aren't handling it. I'm saying, you know, it's, it must be a significant challenge for them because if you've got a, if you've got a system that's 10 years old that runs, I don't know, your gas pipeline and, it's not exactly going to be in support anymore, is it? But they, they don't want to change it. They might not have the budget to change it. And then all of a sudden, they've got this legislation that kicks them in the teeth. And they have yeah. to suddenly, you know, try desperately to hammer this square peg in an extremely round hole. We have certainly seen some of that need, you know, sort of those initial knee jerks. You know, post the colonial pipeline incident, the, you know, the, the importance and, and reliance that we have on, on things beyond electricity became, suddenly became obvious. I think the, you know, historically the immediacy of, of any, of any issue on the electricity grid has meant that it's become, you know, became an early focus of, uh, of legislators. You know, the, there's never been a film where somebody's doing hacking where they're not trying to switch off lights. You know, it's, uh, whether their objective is to rob a bank or, or, or something more nefarious you know this it's been dramatized by hollywood for a long time but pipelines are different your pipe your pipelines are your the, the impacts of something like a cyber attack are, are much less immediate but can be much more significant and i think that's in the past years made it much harder to to legislate for because the idea you know, the, the the typical attack that you imagine against a piece of infrastructure is switching the lights off you click a button you know it, it opens a circuit breaker and the lights go out there is no equivalent on a pipeline. You know, it's uh, you know, they tend, you know, they've got things like line pack. You know, they keep keep it flowing for some time. You know, you might say operational disruption, but not necessarily a, a, an immediate impact to many people. But but over time and over days, those things become more obvious. And so we we saw that the gaps in legislation suddenly being brought to you know to public attention there you know that the and so there was a a very fast reaction you know at um you know which was was necessary by um by legislators like tsa who are responsible for pipeline security but actually with with some collaboration on the initial consult you know, and uh, some initial consultation with you know with with the private owners of infrastructure and and by listening to security experts you know the a lot of the the initial proposals, which were very nurksip like with very demanding timelines, were were changed to much more risk based controls. And so I think it's it's understandable the fast reactions that legislators will bring in when there's a public demand. We're a um, very reactionary society now. You know, the level of communication and connectivity we have means we demand things things faster, and you know, we strive towards popularism. So I think there's um, you know, there, there's a you know, the, there's a certain expectation that when something happens, legislators are just going to turn around and fix it very quickly. 
but modifying a, like say a 10 year old or 20 year old system on a you know supporting a pipeline can't be done overnight it's difficult when those things come in quickly and you know, and there is that reaction to it legislators are reacting to a threat landscape that's changing very very quickly as well so again it's very understandable that they're driving that but there has to be a certain amount of realism to how quickly a change can occur in a in a legacy industry yeah other, otherwise you end up op- introducing operational risk that's much more real than the potential for a, a cybersecurity you know a breach or a cybersecurity uh, fine yeah, I, I, saw, I have I have anecdotes. You know, I, I was a NERC SIP auditor for a while, and I, I remember going to one place, and the CISO came out and talked to us before the audit and said, "I've instructed my people to turn off any device that's you know that's the least bit out of compliance." And we're, we're you know they they started naming all the stuff, and and as we started looking through, they had done that already. They had turned off certain control systems, and they had lost visibility, and they made a decision and said. This loss of visibility is a risk, yes, but we have other manual controls and we know that we know which lineman is out at, on which device or, or which pole or whatever at any given time we were using radios. And so they, they literally were so worried about, you know, a, a violation that they went out and decreased their capability and their visibility and, and, and basically put human lives at risk. There's a kind of intrinsic risk between do, do we follow this sudden change in legislation that has suddenly occurred and now we need to, to get it done? And kind of lose visibility because suddenly we've got to turn off a load of systems that we've been relying on for so many years versus, you know, keeping them on and then running the risk of being attacked. I get the impression in, in many respects, you know, with a lot of legislation coming out, especially government, it's more based upon the outcry from the public. You know, I remember the public outcry, for instance, we're using the colonial pipeline as a good example because it was a really good example of something that occurred relatively recently where there was like awareness immediately because, I mean, the reports were coming in, oh, the oil's going to run out and no one's going to be able to do anything and all of a sudden, you know, cars aren't going to get filled. What was it like over in the States when this was kicking off, just listening to the media? I mean, having visited the the States myself more than a few times, you know, I love the place. I think it's fantastic. I'm mesmerized by your TV, though, because it's like, there's a lot of sensationalization on news channels where you get like the three people arguing with one another on on telly about the same subject matter. But what was it like out there when that when that kicked off? Did that really kind of kick the government into touch? It's like, right, we're going to need to do something immediately. You know, calm the populace down. I'm just trying to think of different things that you know that I in my life that occurred that you know and still continue to occur whenever we have a scenario like this. But on ones on the good side budgets are no longer as restrictive, mm. you know? So, but then it seems like if a company, if a CISO doesn't already have a seat at the table, this is going to allow them to have a seat at the table, but then they're going to be asked questions strictly around whatever's <clears throat> in the news, whatever's sexy, you know? And, and if they're trying to get, if they realize that they're missing hygiene, they're missing not sexy, you know, stuff that they're, they're got, again, you, you talked about old computers and old, you know, if they've got, 10 is pretty new. When you said 10, I was like, oh man, I wish there, you know, we're, we're talking about windows NT or something, you know, some people are stuck with a windows 95 and it was never designed with security in mind. And so if they're stuck on something like that, and they're now hearing about this latest threat and they're trying to address this to the board of directors and come up with what they're doing about log 4j, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of something more modern than, than, you know, some windows machine that can't be patched anymore it's difficult sometimes it it, it gets uh, a distraction it makes a distraction where they want to try to okay i I really like how you're you're engaging now board of directors i really get that i get that you're 
very interested in this now and, and you, you understand the threat, but then they, they have to turn around and exert, you know, their own um, uh, expertise and, and take a bold step and be able to say, okay, do you remember last year when I mentioned that we got to get rid of Windows 95? They have to go <laughs> back and, and try to address fundamentals. And, and sometimes that there's something that I feel like this is, a, I think it's going to resonate with Phil, with what he's hearing from our, our, some of our customers is you can't treat OT like IT. So you're mm. talking about a manufacturing plant, electricity, any, any place where you have a lot of OT stuff. And then you're hearing about a threat against IT that may or may not even apply on the OT side. If it does, that's even more problematic. That probably means you don't have segmentation. You mm. have nothing between your IT and your OT. So it takes this new, getting the fundamentals, the same thing that we did in IT 20 years ago, the same idea in place, like the change, change management, you know, and stuff. But, but. Phil has mentioned it two or three times. It all has to be risk-based. If we ch- take a vanilla, you know, approach and say we cannot have one compliance violation across anywhere, otherwise it could be a million dollars, then they go to some unused system hardly, or some like you know, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of a, like a weather feed. Very important, you know, to know what the weather is doing. But if you have a weather, you know, a box that all it does is is accepts uh, feeds from the weather services and, and and it allows the people to plan maintenance and things like that, it can't be treated with the same risk as an engineering workstation or mm. anything on the lower levels of, of the industrial controls. Yeah, so again, and capturing what really is key to the organization, what delivers value is is so important in, in looking at risk. And you know, that is actually called out in, in things like the NIS directive. You, know, you only have to deal with assets that are in scope. And most of the time, IT, the IT side of the house, most of it is considered in scope because in, in many ways, it is the protective layer that looks after a lot of the OT. There is an intrinsic connectivity between IT and OT. There's, uh, the idea of one being air-gapped from the other is incredibly rare. Now, and you know, if you were to look at modern manufacturing, it is it would be absolutely impossible to think to imagine how today's modern supply chains would work without that intrinsic connectivity that exists. You know, we we talk for many years about Industry 4.0, and and they said where that's come to fruition is in the manufacturing sector. You see the demand from a supermarket, you know deriving from particular suppliers what products need to arrive you know they you know trucks arrive and they pull into you know into lights out warehouses where there are pallets of of goods you know that have been specially picked and selected by robotics you know they're put onto 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 the trucks you know, without any human interaction you know there's no way of managing a complex supply chain and variety that kind of variety without you know an intrinsic exchange of information between different organizations and it's often at a commercial level so you've got to think about the you know end to end capability of an organization and the capacity and so you know, so the you know, the those those work management systems the enterprise management systems the commercial systems they're all connected in some way and have to be done in a very particular way to keep it safe you know, but we can't just disconnect can't assume that there won't be connectivity we've got to figure out how to manage that connectivity in a safe way 
how we ensure that things are properly segmented and segregated and just in, and how we have visibility of those things. We can see that communication, that, that necessary communication that's occurring so that the, the, you know, there's an ability to respond to the most important, uh, the most important vulnerabilities and, you know, and in, in particular, the, the threats that might be occurring in that space. And so it was really cool to see that, legis- that in the NIS legislation, actually the, the idea of in-scope assets. We're not just looking at everything. We're not just seeing everything in this particular system because it's over a certain number of watts is is there but instead getting organizations that are in scope due to their overall size to think about what's important to their operation and you know and, and driving towards that that risk-based perspective but it is that it that you know, understanding that we can't just disconnect we can't just air gap anymore we can't have these old-fashioned controls you know, you mentioned you know the the Sellafield um, you know reports that we've just seen in the media. You know, that it's really challenging when you get these you know for organisations like them who got, got a non-corroborated you know uh, story comes out. It generates a huge amount of work for them, you know, to go and to go and deal with them. But, but you know the um, you know the the government departments that are responsible for looking after them. You know, they are a NIS compliant organization you know organization has to be you know the office of national Air of nuclear regulation is involved in looking after them you know department of uh, you know, energy net zeros um have been will have been working with them from for years now to ensure and you know this this compliance and it, it's important that we recognize that there will be very difficult controls to implement there you know one of the things called out by the guardian in their reporting on that is is the fact that your USB sticks can be used on this equipment? Of, of course, they can. You know, <laughs> they're built in an environment that is, uh, you know, that is has been air gapped for many years, and you have many bits of of, uh, of legacy equipment. And without you know, without knowing what's in their environment, I think it's entirely reasonable that those things may may exist, and they will have all the mitigations for it. So, but this can be some without an understanding and appreciation of legacy challenges, it can get a lot of. Uh, a lot of you know very very difficult to manage messages because we the things we assume are a problem can you know, and in particular even even uh, you know from an IT security perspective the things that we think of as normal are not uh, your uh, normal controls are often very very difficult to implement in those legacy OT environments and I think it's you know we've got to step back and appreciate the hard work that everybody is putting in in this space and make sure that the right and proportional controls are driven in by legislation so and I think you know and, and so I think that's uh, something we we've got to always consider every environment is difficult you will have some of those highly segmented standalone legacy systems like you get in nuclear generation or in Processing, but on the other end of the scale, you've got that highly interconnected, highly interdependent ITOT environment in manufacturing and supply chain, you know, which is you know it is intrinsically interconnected. You know, it is intrinsically digital, and you know we need to allow for that and make sure that the right controls can be put in place to keep keep things flowing because we we need goods on our shelves as much as we need uh, we need electricity. You know, we've got to eat, and so I think it's uh, you know it's you know it's also good to see that. Shift in legislation, not just to look at things like electricity, but also to look at you know all of the things that are critical to us in civilization. We all know that government departments aren't necessarily the greatest at talking to one another or even planning together about what they're about to put in place as, as you know, these are the new guidelines. And in the UK, we have ombudsmen who do this all the time, and you see conflicts within organizations because two different legislations, you know, a cybersecurity legislation that says one thing could actually kind of countermand or, or break 
legislation from another completely different department, nothing to do with cybersecurity. But and it was something that, that that I gleaned out of the old technology thing. You know, you've got legislation that says, right, you've got to keep a, an uptime of this amount of time. You've got to maintain your pipeline or maintain your electricity feeds and gas feeds or whatever it may well be. But then on the other side, you've got cybersecurity saying, no, you can't have those systems because they're old. Who who wins in that situation? Do you end up in this kind of deadlock environment? Because they're never they're never going to talk. You know, the, the gas people are never going to talk to the cybersecurity industry or ombudsman if we end up with one of those in in the UK. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you do you see that first of all, and is that something you kind of live in a bit of fear of? It's like who wins? Yeah, I don't really know who wins. I don't know who loses as the consumer. <laughs> I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, the companies are running thin. You can't take a manufacturing company and say, okay, now suck up another $50 million budget, you know, for compliance or whatever. So this, all these costs have to get passed to the consumer. So at the end of the day, you know, now who wins and those arguments between competing, you know, authorities and everything, that's where I feel like the only practical way that I've, I've personally ever been able to do it is, is to, to try to build a high watermark and say, if you're saying, you know, five character password and you're saying 10, <laughs> let's do 10. And, but, yeah. but even that's complicated since it's a moving target. And, and I, I think also what you kind of teased out is the, do we even want passwords? I mean, if I can have a better way with MFA and no passwords, why shouldn't I? So that, the whole idea of technical feasibility, you know, build, being built in and, and say, if you could make really practical compliance requirements that say, at least do this, but anything more secure than that is okay. But a lot of times they don't have any kind of a caveat like that. It's, it's strictly at the words, you know, whatever the words mean and the compliance requirement is what you have to address. So even if your your the intent of the requirement is met, that's where I guess attorneys hash it out in court You know, at the, at the end of the day. But that's expensive for the, as you say, you know, that's expensive on the budgets themselves because normally you're the one that's fighting it in court. And of course, if it sets a precedent, then it, then it has a knock-on effect to a lot of other organisations within the environment who are having the same kind of concerns. Yeah, yeah, I think there's. I mean, I can think of two examples of where legislation has is to the detriment of uh, of you know, the advancement in cybersecurity. One is on information exchange. You know, um, the the hesitance that many organisations have. In order to you know to quickly share information with their peers to try and mitigate the threat that, you know and from expanding fast, is that, you know, is that ultimately once you get to the process the the point of in a process of, de- of uh, declaring the event you start a chain of events you know so there's a delay in for people waiting until the absolute certainty that this has gone from being an incident to you know a potential cyber incident to a cyber event you know it's going you need to be. Once you get to that point where you're saying, "Yep, this I'm declaring that this is an incident," and it starts to become reportable, your people will hold off from that as long as they feasibly can until they've got they've got absolute certainty. And you know, during that time, that's when information is you know, we struggle to get that exchanged. You know, and there've been many cases where your organizations within your know, there's almost a certainty that they're you know, under some sort of, of attack but they, the ability for them to very quickly share in order to manage the, the threat you know and, and help others from being hit by the same thing you know it can be can be delayed by that the other thing is around technological advancement you know until you're eradicating an event too until you're at the point where you're resilient against a re-attack you don't want to share that even mm-hmm. if you have a man a government mandate let's go back to our old Windows 95 or whatever 
and you say, okay, we have to go and isolate and get jump boxes and, and, and do some kind of mitigation before we, we announce this to the public because we still have 75 of them out there or whatever, our exposure is still there. So then all of a sudden you got this, you, you, you know, the little angel on one side and the devil on the other. I'm not going to say which is the government, but one of <laughs> them is saying you shall report now. Another one's saying, if you report now, you're going to open yourself up to further attack from other adversaries. But the, the other area of seeing where legislation sometimes drives a, um, a stiflement of development is if you take an example like cloud-based technologies, you know, sometimes the cloud is the solution. You know, we yeah. are... There are some resilience reasons why people might not want to adopt the cloud in OT. And you know, that's not really the debate. You know, they you know you've an organization deciding it should put its skater in, you know, you're in the you're in the cloud, you should that should be driven by whether they want to physically host it somewhere else and whether they can stand up to the idea that it might not be in their own direct physical control. But actually most of the most organizations then aren't aren't worried about um you know whether it's physically the right place to put it they're more worried about how do they how do they demonstrate compliance if they mm. put their stuff on other people's machines because when you've got legislation that says you must be able to, to declare who has ever had physical access to a particular computer and you don't even know where that computer is you know because it doesn't matter where it is then you can't demonstrate compliance so you can't move towards it which means you're stuck on a legacy technology. You know, Microsoft Active Directory is a you know great example of that. The on-premise version of it is is ultimately riddled with flaws. You know, it's been a, the the key way of managing your know, access into you know so many systems for so long. Azure AD is the future. You know that that is the one that is you know architected differently. It's the one that is going to be kept maintained and up to date. So. Manage, but uh, but managing a standalone on-premise environment using just purely the legacy technologies is uh, is incredibly is going to get incredibly uh, difficult in the future. You know, if you're trying to make your keep keep on top of it, keep it patched, you know, and all the rest. But it's but it's difficult for people to adopt those new technologies because it's in the cloud and the legislation doesn't allow for it. So I think so it's going to be um, something that legislators need to continue to think about is how do you deal with the fact that new technologies will emerge that might be better and might be more resilient. You know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to argue whether you know for whether it, you know, it's the right thing for people to do it or, or not, but if but the fundamental principle is you know that sometimes the next technology might be better and the legislation might stop you from taking it. We deal with many utilities who still use serial links instead of yeah. IP links. Not you know, not because they're actually better, are actually more secure, but it act, but it's the way that the legislation handles those things and you know, and allows them to have slightly different control sets. And you know, and so here's the it's a logical decision for organizations to take. And so technological enhance advancement is stifled by that legislation and actually to the detriment of the risk profile. Which is, you've read my mind, Phil, on that one, because that was the, the other side of the question. I don't see a lot of third-party management starting. Uh, some of it is starting to come into the more commercial stuff. You, you see a lot of it now. Because I think they've gotten used to the idea, for finally, in some cases, not going to mention any particular compliance legislations because I'll get in trouble, you know, that third parties are now a thing that are here to stay as a service functions, platform as a service, software as a service, all of this different stuff is now being served from independent organizations that make up the whole of your infrastructure. And we're, you mentioned like Azure. We're reliant on the security of that organization holding those functions as well. It's not just us anymore. We now have to consider the, the wider third-party food chain as well. 
And I'm seeing a significant challenge with that realization coming in in the commercial world compared to kind of companies that come under quite strict government legislation like OT organizations. They must be having a nightmare with that one because, A, obviously I'm guessing the adoption in that space has been relatively slow compared to the more commercial world. But does their legislation even support it? And is it even coming close to being able to support the fact that, you know, they could do it cheaper, feasibly better through some kind of as a service function. But at the same point, this is then going to push the problem out even further. I mean, Dora, for instance, it's not just for financial institutions. It's also for organizations that deal with those financial institutions. So there's a domino effect in the food chain. Are we seeing that? Are we going to start seeing that in legislation coming out of government bodies? Because I do worry about that. Yeah, I mean, the, I agree. When when I first read the um, the NIS directive and started to see you know who would be in scope of that, I remember asking whether whether Philips would be included because they control more load than the average substation in their ability to switch on and off light bulbs, and so it's. Um, yeah, I think there are there's a there's a much greater level of integration at the supply chain than maybe we appreciate. And aggregated risks associated with the supply chain in OT are, are quite considerable. The industrial giants have become the size that they are because they are business, very business savvy. And these are 150-year-old businesses that have adapted many, many times, you know, through through their life. And most of them. If you were to consider the you know the the largest the Siemens, GEs, ABBs of the world, you know they have all been through many adaptations of their business model, and so they've shifted not just from selling boxes to um, to selling services, and so and that that you know way beyond them, they, you know, others have copied that model. You know they they're moving from the idea that they used to sell big pieces of industrial equipment to the fact that they now almost service that for its life. And we, we so we we find many organisations that traditionally used to buy things to them almost buying services. If you look at the wind industry, many organisations now that own wind farms are not big power companies; they're pension funds. What do pension funds know about managing engineering assets? They don't know anything. They don't care. They manage assets. You know, they manage financial assets. How do they? How are they going to manage a wind farm? They're purchasing services. You know, and, and you buy turnkey facilities. You buy uh, some. You don't, and they don't say, "I would like to buy fifty wind turbines." You buy a certain number of megawatts of output, which means that we're seeing these OEMs, and we're seeing uh, you're know, actively working and connected to these assets throughout their life. Or people buying them, but they're buying them with service contracts, you know, connected for you know with those assets for twenty five years. So who and why? Is, you know, the, from a connection point of view, is expanding massively. And so even in that very in those traditionally very vertically integrated organisations, which you know, could create nat- very natural digital divides between their IT and their OT at different levels, we're seeing a lot more interconnectivity and a lot more shared threat across that landscape as well. And so. And it can be, you know, very challenging, you know, for those organisations to manage against you know, different commercial frameworks and different legislation across multiple international boundaries. You know, so I don't, I don't think that the the legislation is is quite there yet to start to recognise that it, you know, the supply chain is part of that. But I, but there are things in consultation, you know, for 
your updates to the NIST directive that start to look at you know, key suppliers will fall into the scope of you know, these things if they have that connectivity, you know, rather than just the asset owners themselves. And so it's yeah, it's it's evolving. I think there's a recognition that there's this fundamental change in the market you know, by by legislators, but I haven't seen anything really significant in the you know, OT legislation space that allows for it. In some cases, the legislation still makes that remote connectivity very difficult, which may drive inefficiency in those businesses. You know, uh, there's, there's still very limited remote connectivity into, say, you know, the U.S. power system, certainly for the uh, the Bez High and and uh, and medium assets, because the legislation just doesn't really allow for it. Which means that the traditional model of, of you're buying assets, building them yourself, and, and uh, maintaining them is is still there. But in in other countries where the legislation is different, we're seeing you know very different commercial models being deployed by you know, those, the those the vendors who are building and servicing those things. But the only way for them to achieve economies of scale and ultimately deliver deliver benefit to the ratepayer and the consumer is uh, you know, is by having remote connectivity. So we're seeing you know, it, it's going to happen. That shift is is, you know, is is occurring, and the legislation needs to keep up with that. I think that's a key, a key, you know, success factor for legislators. They have to be able to empower companies to adopt new technology, as opposed to creating this paradigm where the only people that are compliant are the ones that are falling behind in terms of operational. Like they're 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 not competitive anymore with others out there in the field because they're putting all their emphasis on legacy controls and trying to make their uh, compliance uh, program real easy to maintain. And it's hard as well because obviously, you know, the older the technology gets, this is the, the weird dichotomy behind it, the more expensive it gets to maintain the damn stuff, you know. And, I mean, the movement to third party allows you to kind of skip ahead in, in a variety of different ways to, to kind of be able to provide assurance that solutions are going to be up to date and so on and so forth because you can mandate it through contracts and all the rest of it you might are you starting to get kind of like increased oversight into how secure you are as an organization from your customers because i'm definitely seeing it over my side of the fence it's still early days there's a lot of kind of questionnaires that you get usually based off of iso and all the rest of it but are you starting to see people saying actually no we want to sit down and actually I'm a CISO at, I don't know, XYZ company, and we've been using you for a year. Can we sit down and have a conversation about security, what you guys are doing, and understand a bit more about the strategy that you have behind it, rather than relying on the answers to an actual spreadsheet form? It's. I still think the majority of them are spreadsheet forms, most because the CISO of this of the org that's going to scrutinize us is very busy and also yeah. has their own fires, and so they're largely outsourcing that within their team, you know, to their third party risk managers. Um, but you know, but once in a while, um, we'll get someone that'll. I, I I'd rather meet with the CISO. Because yeah. sometimes we'll get a third party, we'll get someone, especially when it's a contractor, some company doesn't even do their own third party. They ironically outsource that to a third party, you know, to vet their third parties or whatever. That's going to get uh, in, uh, recursive if I don't watch it there. But <laughs> those people, sometimes they're, they're check boxes and they'll yeah. say, do you X, Y, and Z? And then as we're going down through it, there's something that, no, no, we didn't do that. Five years ago, we quit doing that. Here's a better way. But we now, we, it's just like the whole compliance paradigm I've been talking about. Now, we're out of compliance with their internal program because we don't do a thing that's legacy. So then if, we, if I were able to sit with their security leadership or with anybody internal to the company that really understands it, then we can say, 
here's here's a prime example and then we can explain exactly we can show them I, I i welcome that kind of scrutiny you know it's good but what i don't here's what i don't like you want to hear about a thorn in the flesh when some you know some uh, adversary just blogs something and then all of a sudden now 20 30 50 customers come out of the woodwork and say it's this blog for real and then you have to start answering questionnaires that you've already answered three months ago or a year ago because someone made an allegation now, yeah. that's a problem how do you how does that scale you know, how are you going to do that whenever you have hundreds and hundreds of customers? You have to have a whole team now of the disinformation team that goes out and, and starts proving that everything that people say that's a lie is a lie. You know, that that's I, I understand the need for I, I feel like if I was the CISO of this company and I heard an allegation against one of our third parties, I people are I like that the awareness is there that third party risks are real and that any connection into your environment is is a threat vector. I get that totally. But man, we can't let FUD be the guide, right? If yeah. every time we hear a thing, we start panicking and we start, we deviate from our processes and start uh, uh, making a whole bunch of new mandates, even internally, all the people within a company that have to track that and follow it and meet with people. And, you know, that just, it's a distraction, I think, from real security again. Steve, you and I are very, very similar. I, I, I totally agree with you. You know, more often than not, if you just sit down with the, the other CISO and just kind of have a bit of a chat with them, you can get them far more than you're ever going to get out of a, a simple spreadsheet. You know, I get really annoyed with the tick box exercise and with our service providers, you know, we're a company, we've got our own service providers, maybe not Microsoft. It's kind of harder to do it with that kind of organization when we're the size that we are, but we, we have a hosting company that provide a number of systems for us. And I sat down specifically with their, their leadership and their CISO and said, right, so tell me a little bit about yourselves what you're doing pretty much did the security rundown that i would do for customers when we first go in and they say could you tell us what our security's like please you know and i think it's important to have that and it's important as well that if there is a misinformation attack that they can reach out to somebody they know and trust and say hey steve look I, you know i've seen this in the media or we've got a, a bit of a concern at management that there's new legislation coming in can we just kind of like have sort of 10 minutes maybe meet up for a pint and a chat about, I mean, I'm British, obviously it's going to be a pint and a chat, <laughs> a pint and a chat and discuss, you know, what we're going to do about it or, you know, you're one of our key suppliers. Is that so? It could be all done a hell of a lot easier if we just did that. Yeah, that relationship is key to the whole thing, right? Having that trust and that transparency. If people are not incentivized to share and to be open, then it, it hurts us all. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, okay, maybe I'll look better for a minute. But some someday someday is going to tell what actually happened. If I if I go in there and I am too vague and I don't give people actionable intelligence or actionable TTPs out of a certain attack, I think that that kind of transparency we got to somehow foster that. I appreciate the um, Biden administration. Um, what is it? Executive order about that kind of forcing. You know, it's back to what Phil said earlier that the early days of, of compliance were to force people to do the right thing because people weren't doing the right thing. Yeah. I remember my, you know, hands on, I watched people surf the web from HIs, the devices that control, you know, the, the, the most, the inner workings, the control systems at electrical utilities and, you know, with no, no firewall in between or whatever, let's go way <laughs> back and, and talk war stories. So before NERC SIP came out, people, a lot of people were doing the wrong thing. Maybe it was because of a governance problem inside their company. They didn't have the budget, the understanding. They didn't have people they could trust, you know, that, that knew it, the subject matter expertise. But at some point now, I kind of hope that it evolves to where compliance is not that, where it's truly, where legislation actually is getting help into the hands of the practitioners, as opposed to 
another hindrance from real security. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just dreaming, but that's that seems to be that has to be the goal of of legislation overall, right? Over time, I think the one of the biggest problem I have with like spe- specifically government legislation is I do wonder sometimes whether or not they actually include a good set of infosec professionals to advise them properly on what they're saying. You know, we we did get a few laughable ones in in the UK Parliament where it's like we need to legislate the internet. Okay. That that's going to be interesting, isn't it? How how are you going to regulate the internet now? I mean, the time to regulate that was like twenty years ago when it was when it was first created. You didn't do it then. It's it's not that beast that it was twenty years ago. Now, it's putting a lot of stress, for instance, on like social media. I mean, you know, I'm not a big fan of social media at the best of times, but they're now saying, oh, you've got to regulate this content, and you go, how? You've got millions upon millions upon millions of users. They were talking about millions upon millions of subject matters and putting, posting millions and millions of things. How can you get any one company to regulate it? I mean, we can barely regulate our own event management. That's why we go to fantastic companies like Dragos, you know, <laughs> to, to help us do that. It's just crazy for me. And, and I, I just wish that they would maybe think a little bit better and get like proper peer groups. Cause I was involved in the CSFI, the cybersecurity forum initiative years and years ago, many years ago when they first started and I had a great time with those guys. I've got to speak to some of the, some interesting people in elements of the American government and what have you that I would never normally have access to. Um, and it's a great team there. So, you know, look them up out there if you're ever interested. CSFI, great bunch of guys. I think it's, it's obviously important that, you know, that, any opportunity to provide support and feedback to legislators is there. You know, it's uh, you know, um, you, I don't think um, a day goes by when when some people aren't consulted, you know, on um, you know, on on what they think. You know, I think you, I don't think that they that legislators are deliberately doing you know doing things in a box. You know, I think they they're often responding to to time constraints and budget constraints, which which limit how far that they can reach. Um, but the, you know the, the opportunities are there for those infosec experts to get out there and get involved. But the one the one of the big challenges is that 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 capacity challenge flows both ways. You know that you know your CISOs are some of the most busy people in you know your in the world. So um, the, you know the like that they can just sort of in their free time reach out you know, and provide that support is is hard as well. So it's yeah I think there's the it's it's a it's not easy to carve that time out on either side to try and uh, you know to try and feedback, but I think that's something that's entirely necessary. You know, and I think you know that you know if if legislators reach out, often they will get the support that they ask for. Then if they you know they tell people that there's a time constraint, people want to help because they they want to avoid the pain that could come from the wrong thing uh, being put in place. So you know, it's a, yeah, it's important that that those in the north take the time to reach out and, and help governments and, and legislators as well, you know, uh, to, you know, to help them come to the right conclusion. Cause it's, you know, they aren't going to be able to hire people. And even if they did hire people that, you know, their relevance, you know, um, you know, starts to drift because it's a constantly changing environment. So I think that there's, you know, we all have to continue to work together and collaborate as much as possible to, to try and form, you know, new legislation as it, as it arrives. Fantastic. Right. Well, We've reached the end of our time together. Thank you, Steve, Phil. It's been absolutely fantastic working and, and having a chat with you guys about the subject matter. I know we've got a few other things posted up and 
some point soon. If you haven't already seen it, by the time we release this, I will be interviewing Steve myself. We'll be having our own little chat at some point. So absolutely fantastic. It's been really good talking about this. Um, We're probably going to have to return to this in like another six months because everything will change. You know, or something new will come out. We'll all be sitting there commiserating over it or trying to figure out how we're going to damn well do it. But thank you ever so much, guys, um, and look after yourselves. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.